Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, again, we need your help in discerning the Scriptures and understanding. Lord, I pray that these things would, would set off some light bulbs in our minds and that we would be uh, surprised at what we learn. Father, I pray that we would be, uh, again, we would have our hearts stirred for Christ and for His great love for the church and His continued work in the church. I pray that we would love the church more than we did when we arrived, uh, that we would be devoted to your body and that we would be uh, striving to fulfill the commission that you've given us, knowing that you are with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as you know, and I see many of you have copies of the confession with you, that's good. Um, our goal, beginning tonight and going into the foreseeable future, is to begin to work through the 1689 London Baptist Confession, also known as the Second London Baptist Confession Line by line, sometimes word by word, we're going to go through it. Probably not very much differently than all of you did when you read it at home. We're going to go through it together. The reason is because, as far as I can tell, sometime in the year 2013, um, we, we don't keep very good records, but as, as a church, we voted to adopt that as our confession of faith. That is our confession uh, saying this is our jointly held statement of common belief regarding the most important doctrines in Scripture. Everything's not in there, but regarding the most important things, that is our church's confession of faith. Now, before we actually get to the confession, we need to begin by laying some groundwork with regard to some questions, common objections, with regard to creeds and confessions in general, and then our own confession in particular. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to begin by tonight looking at what is called historical theology, laying a biblical groundwork for what we're going to do. Then next week we'll look at or we'll study the purpose of a confession. Why do they exist? Why do we need one? The following week, I think I can cram into one week a history, brief history of our confession you know, we say the second London Confession. That assumes a first London Baptist Confession. So we'll talk about the history of our confession, and I think in that same week I can cover an outline of our confession, um, a, a way to break it down where you can see that it is put together very logically and systematically. So that's the goal. Hopefully, after three weeks, 
We'll open our confessions that you have on your lap and we'll begin to read through them. But uh, we, I do want to do this because we have... There are many objections. When you say that you're a confessional church, the average person is not going to have a clue what you mean. And some would even go far as to say, well, we don't need that. We have the Bible. So, um, or, or why would you not just come up with one on your own instead of taking one that's old? Now, I would say as we begin this idea of historical theology that the main issue underlying many of the common objections with creeds and confessions is that issue of time. Many people would say that confession was written, we could say written, if you know the history, written and adopted 1677, adopted in 1689. We're going to see the roots of it actually go back further than that. And so many would say, should we not, as a modern church, in a modern context, in a modern culture, with people from our our generation, should we not attempt to come up with something newer, something more relevant, more modern, something that could distinguish us as a church from all the other churches? Well, the short answer to that question is no, we should not seek to distinguish ourselves. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. And we'll see the goal of church history and, and the creeds and confessions that have been used, it has never been to distinguish, but rather to make sure everybody knows you still believe in orthodox Christianity. It's, it's not to diverge. This, the common idea that we would plant a church and somehow seek to differentiate ourselves, make sure everybody knows that we're different from everybody, that's, that's unheard of in history. As a matter of fact, we'll see the, 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 the signatories of our confession were working really hard to make sure everybody knew they were orthodox so that they were not persecuted by Christians. So the answer, no, we should not. Now why is that? Why, why do we believe that a document penned in the 17th century should have any relevant bearing on a church in 2017? Well, the answer is because we believe in what is called historical theology. Historical theology. And so tonight we're going to look at what I've titled a biblical case for historical theology. Now Greg Allison has a book called Historical Theology. If you've ever seen uh, Grudem's Systematic Theology, it's blue. If you've ever seen um, Allison's Historical Theology, it looks almost the exact same. It's just green. And it, it's, it's basically written to be a companion uh, work with that systematic theology. But it's basically a systematic theology breaking, broken down um, throughout history. So he's written this book, and this is in, in the opening pages of that book. He defines historical theology like this. Historical theology is the study of the interpretation of Scripture and the formulation of doctrine by the church of the past. The study of the interpretation of Scripture and the formulation of doctrine by the church of the past. So, in other words, we're studying what the church of the past came up with. Now, we can unpack that definition even more and what some of the assumptions that are in there. First, we need to understand that there is a church of the past. There have been Christians who gathered around the Scriptures and the teachings of the apostles since 
the beginning. Since Christ ascended, the Holy Spirit came. We read in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to the prayers. There's always been a church, and we would call that a church of the past. We also need to understand that we, in 2017, are a part of the same faith, the same Christianity as them. We're, we're right along with them. We could consider ourselves merely a continuation of what they started. We also, I think, could agree that throughout the Scriptures we are commanded and expected to study and to know and interpret the Scriptures. The Scriptures of the church of the past are the same as our Scriptures. There's only one body of divine truth, the Bible. The church of the past studied that divine truth. They studied that same body that we study. We also need to understand Scripture has only one interpretation. People like to say, well, that's just your interpretation. There's only one. Now, we might can quabble over which one is right, but there's only one. There may be many applications, but it only has one interpretation. And so, if that's true, then the interpretation of the church of the past should be the same as ours. They came first, and they formulated, we could say, articulated that interpretation first, starting with the apostles as they interpret the Old Testament Scriptures. We get our pattern from them, what they did, that's what we do. And therefore... Our study of the Scriptures must include, in some part, the study of what was discovered by the church of the past. In other words, we must listen to what they have said. And Allison goes on in his, his book to say, "...the church may refine and strengthen the proverbial wheel. It has no need to reinvent it." Our goal is not to reinvent theology. It's not to come up with any new theology. We want to know what they said. So let me give you six benefits of historical theology very quickly. Historical theology helps us to distinguish orthodoxy from heresy. In other words, it, it reminds us or shows us what has always been believed. And we can compare what has always been believed to any type of errant introduction or distortion. Secondly, historical theology provides sound biblical interpretations and theological foundations. We can build on their foundation. We don't have to build on a, a new foundation. Every generation doesn't have to come along and build a new foundation. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need to know how they got their foundation. We do. But we don't have to come up with a new one. Historical theology protects against individualism, personal and ecclesiastical. When you study the, what the church of the past has found in the Scriptures, you're reminded, number one, you're not alone in your study. By yourself, you're not alone. You're never alone. I would say the same thing that the author to the Hebrews said. There's a great cloud of witness that, witnesses that surrounds us. So you're not alone individually, but also as a church, when we study, we are reminded we're not the only church. We're not the only church. So it helps us to protect against individualism. It helps us to express beliefs in common or in contemporary forms. When we can see how they looked at a heresy and fought that heresy with truth, and then we see maybe a, 
a rewording of the same heresy, that helps us to articulate and express the same truth, perhaps in a different way, in our modern context. So it helps us express beliefs in contemporary forms, encourages us to focus on the essentials. That doctrine which Satan attacks most is the one, or the doctrines he hates the most. The ones he hates the most, he will attack the most. And those are the doctrines that are the most often formulated in the historic creeds and the confessions. Primarily, who is God? The person of Christ, the person and the work of Christ. And you can see, we were talking this morning, every deviation, every cult, every, every sub-Christian sect, they go wrong on the person of Christ. And so we'll see throughout the, the, the centuries, the church has just gotten more and more detailed about Christ. Satan hates him. And so we learn, what are the essentials? And then lastly, historical theology assures us that Christ is fulfilling His promise to His church. And that's where I want to camp out. I want to stop and rest there, His promise to His church. In our text, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, we find, I believe, more than just a a practical usefulness for historical theology. It's, It's more than just... Yeah, it's helpful. I think in Scripture we actually learn through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that historical theology is presumed. It is assumed by God that we will read what other Christians have said. In other words, the study of the interpretation of Scripture and the formulation of doctrine by the church of the past is assumed to be one of our duties as a church. So, how do I want to prove that? Well, here's my thesis for tonight. And it has a lot of commas. I've got a couple sentences tonight that have a lot of commas. But this is what I'm going to try to prove. Jesus Christ, the Lord and head of the church manifests His presence with power in, protection of, and guidance to His church by giving to her offices of men gifted in making His Word known to His people. He has always done this, and He will continue to do so until He returns. I'll read it again quickly. Jesus Christ, the Lord and head of the church, manifests His presence with power in protection of and guidance to His church by giving to her offices of men gifted in making His Word known to His people. He has always done this and He will continue to do so until He returns. I want to prove that with three truths. First truth. Christ promised that he would be with his church. If we were to go through and compile a list of passages or references from the New Testament, we can conclude and also take great comfort in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has promised his own personal presence in and with every one of His gathered local churches until He returns bodily. I'm going to give you four texts to prove that. First one is the one we read to open, Matthew 28, 
verses 18 through 20. And I hope you'll keep your Bibles open. We'll be turning quite a bit. Matthew 28, 18 and 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus promises, I am with you. Now I would suggest that when he says I am with you, he is referring to the what we might call the universal body of all Christians and not just the apostles. Some would say the Great Commission was only given to the apostles, therefore it doesn't, uh, doesn't um, have anything to do with us. But I would suggest he refers to the universal body of all Christians. Now how do I know that when he made that promise, I can come along in 2017 and I can claim that promise for myself? Well, it's because of the time frame he gives. I am with you always until the end of the age. These apostles, he knew, would not live till the end of the age. Their children would not live to the end of the age. Their children's 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 children would not live until the end of the age. So if he says, I am with you until the end of the age, he must be speaking with that group and also the very last generation of Christians until at the time of his return. He will be with his people. And so we have here the personal presence of Christ with all of His people until the end of the age. Jesus Christ Himself with His people. Alright, turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and we've looked at this before. It shouldn't be anything new. We're sort of creating a almost like a syllogism, but not quite. Jesus Christ Himself with His people, John chapter 14. We can read verse 18 first, very similar to what we just read. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. We might ask, how will you come to us? Well, just prior to that in verses 15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. We could also look at verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So how is it, if Christ can make this promise in Matthew 28, I will be with you to the end of the age, and we know that that has to refer to every generation of believers until the end of the age, how is it that the ascended Christ, the ascended reigning king and head of the church, who sits bodily at the right hand of the Father, how can He be with us and in us? Well, the answer is here, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And so we have not only Christ Himself with His people, but we have the personal presence of Christ with all of His people until the end of the age in and through His Holy Spirit. He's going to be with us. 
All right, now turn to Matthew chapter 18. Another common passage. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 19. Christ speaking, Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now remember, the context here is local church discipline. In the passage, we learn that the judicial verdict of Christ as He is in heaven is vocalized or manifested through the procedures of the gathered local assembly. When we put this together with what Paul teaches us later about church discipline and, and what Christ teaches us here, we put all of this together and we learn this can't happen apart from a church. This is one of the foundational uh, proofs for church membership. You can't discipline somebody who you can't say is a member or not a member. And so... Christ promises that He will be there. If two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And so now we have the personal presence of Christ Himself through His Holy Spirit with all of His people individually, yes, but making known His heavenly decrees within the gathered local church meeting. Christ Himself will be with His people we have the personal presence of Christ with all of His people to the end of the age through His Spirit. And we also have the personal presence of Christ Himself through His Spirit in the midst of the gathered assembly, the local church. I'll give you one more proof text for that truth found in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 verse 13. John speaking of the revelation that he had. He says, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. I should start at verse 12. I, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. We know who the son of man is. We could turn... Then to verse 20 of the same chapter. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. If you continue reading, I think, I think we have good reason to believe the seven churches not only were they actual specific churches, but they are also representative of local churches until the end of the age. All churches... Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. says every individual letter to each church. Again, the personal presence of Christ in the midst of all of His gathered churches. And so the essence of my point is this. If you could see Christ now in all of His dignity, all of His authority, wielding all of His judicial power, waging war on His enemies and conquering them, you would see Him by His Spirit walking in the midst of gathered local churches just like this all over the world. That's where He is, by His Spirit. Bodily, He's at the right hand of the Father, but by His Spirit, He's with His churches. Christ promised 
that he would be with his churches. Secondly, second main point. Not only has Christ promised to be with his churches, but Christ speaks in and through his churches. Christ speaks in and through his churches. You see, our God is not a silent God. In his perfection, see, he would not be perfect if he were not known. Because he is perfect, he is known and made himself known, and he's made himself known through his word. We have a speaking God, and Christ is God, and therefore we have a speaking Christ. The Lord of the church, as he walks in the midst of his churches, manifests himself most evidently and powerfully through his word as it is disseminated in his churches. Now I'll prove that with three more support texts. First, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Now, we could, we could break that up into a, a, good, a good sermon. Point number one, God has spoken. Point number two, God spoke then. Point number three, God's speaking now. He speaks or spoke by the prophets then, but contrasting in these last days, that's now, he is, he is spoken by His Son. And when we read that, He's spoken by His Son. That's talking about the Word about Christ. When we read in the Scriptures, the, the Gospels, we could, we could throw in there the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. The Word of Christ as He actually speaks in the Gospels as He speaks through His apostles and their writings and their teaching. We could say the various writings that exegete and apply the words of Christ also in the, the epistles. The application of scriptural truth as His apostles write. It is as if Christ Himself wrote it. In other words, in the scriptures, right here, 66 books. We'll come back to that in the confession. In the scriptures, God speaks to His churches by His Son through the illumination of His Spirit. He's here and He speaks. Second proof text, Romans chapter 10. Where is Romans? Romans chapter 10. I've mentioned this before, this little translation issue. Beginning in verse 14. How then will they call on whom, Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom... The English Standard Version has the word of there, in Him of whom. But I do think a better translation is... How are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
Now notice again, how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? Those who believe, if you're a Christian, if anybody is to become a Christian, it will be because you heard Christ speak to you. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They listen to me. They will follow me. We must hear Christ. Those who believe hear Christ's voice through what? Someone preaching. How are they to hear without someone preaching? And those who preach are the product of a sending unit. How are they to preach? Unless they are sent. I'll read Calvin on this. Quote, he intimates that it is a proof and a pledge of divine love when any nation is favored with the preaching of the gospel, and that no one is a preacher of it, but he whom God has raised up in his special providence, and that hence there is no doubt, but that he visits that nation to whom the gospel is proclaimed. In other words, God visits that nation to whom the gospel is proclaimed. The gospel does not, he says, fall down like rain from the clouds, but is brought by the hands of men wherever it is sent from above. God, in Christ, is sending preachers to the nations through the ministry of His body, the church. Christ speaks. God, in Christ, through His Spirit and His church, sends men who will go and preach to the nations. Again, we have to remember when we, when we read Scripture, we don't read the Great Commission as us going to our Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. We are the ends of the earth. We are the fruit of this. Okay, another one, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. This is a very important verse for worship. I'll begin halfway through verse 11. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The author of the Hebrews puts the words, these words from Psalm 22 into the mouth of Christ. Christ had already claimed that psalm for himself at the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here these, the, 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 another portion of it is placed onto his lips. In other words, here's the picture. Christ, speaking to his Father in prayer, says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Christ will speak to his adopted siblings concerning the name of God. He will preach to us. And, he goes on, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. In other words, as Christ walks in the midst of His churches, not only do we all stand up and sing, but Christ, speaking to His Father, says, I will sing your praise while I'm in the midst of the congregation. He sings with us on behalf of us, making our worship approved for God. He praises the name of God on our behalf. So the Lord Jesus Christ, through the preaching and the teaching of Scripture, as it is accompanied by His Holy Spirit, 
does in His power what man cannot do alone, namely, He testifies to the hearts of men concerning the goodness and the greatness of God, and He leads His churches in the proper worship of God. In a true church, Jesus Christ is the worship leader. So to summarize that second point, or everything we've said so far, Christ is with His churches, and Christ speaks in and through His churches in all ages and places. Third truth, Christ speaks through gifted men. Christ speaks through gifted men. We could ask at this point, by what primary, not exclusive, but primary means has Christ ordained that His Word be manifested to His churches? What's the primary means that the Word goes forth in the church? I think we would agree it is through the proclamation of the Word of God in the Scriptures by those whom Christ Himself has given as gifts to the church. That is, Christ speaks through gifted men. Now, when I say that, yes, I'm referring to spiritual gifts, but I'm not saying find a man who appears really gifted. I'm referring to they, they are gifts. Christ gifts them to the church as a gift. They're given men to the church. Again, Romans 10, 14, we can read that one again. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed... And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now these are all rhetorical questions he's asking. The sense of all the questions is this. How are they to call on Christ if they've, never, if they've, if they've not believed on Him? And how are they to believe on Him if they've never heard Him? And how could they possibly hear Him without somebody preaching? See, that's the, that's the rhetoric here. He is assuming that when Christ's preachers preach, Christ preaches. He speaks to His people. In other words, preaching is not just a human thing. We don't come here to hear me give my opinions on the Scriptures. We come here to hear from Christ. Whatever I say that aligns with the Scriptures is good. Christ speaks. Whatever I say that is not in line with the Scriptures, it's not Christ. We can, we can scratch it. Preaching is a supernatural God act. When we sit and listen to a preacher, we are experiencing a supernatural work of God if we will hear and if the Holy Spirit will accompany the Word. Another text, Ephesians 2.17. Ephesians 2 and verse 17. Paul, writing to those Christians there, says, And he, there he's speaking of, of God in Christ, probably primarily, um, I'm going to assume it's, it's speaking mostly of the Son, Christ. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So yes, Christ. Christ came and preached to you. 
When did Christ, we've done this before, when did Christ come and preach to the Christians there in Ephesus? It's when Paul came and preached to them and they were converted. When a preacher preaches, as a man called by God and sent by the church, Christ preaches to his people. Flip the page to Ephesians 4, in verse, beginning in verse 11. I said, Christ speaks through gifted men. Here's the, the primary text. And he, that is the ascended Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. He gave to the church offices. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers, or some would say shepherd teachers. It does appear that he's referencing offices in the church. The primary teaching offices given to the universal church as a whole. Now, think about this logic as a, as a again, a modern church. We have no apostles. We have no prophets. Does that mean that we, as a modern church, lack something that Christ gave to His church? The answer is no. Why is that? Because these gifts and their work are to be used by all churches in all times. We all benefit from the apostolic work as it has been preserved in Scripture. We do get the prophets. We do get the, the, the apostles and the New Testament prophets. We do benefit. This church exists. This nation exists because of evangelists who went out and spread the gospel to the nations. And in the same way, if it's true for apostles prophets, and evangelists in the same way we all benefit from the shepherds and teachers from all places and in all times inasmuch as their work is preserved. If we wanted to, to trace the logic in this passage, Christ intends for His church, His body to be built. And it, if it is to be built, it has to be equipped for the work of the ministry. And the church is equipped by the work of the ministry by when, when men who fill these offices exercise their gifts. And therefore, the use of their gifts as given by the Holy Spirit is the ordained means by which Christ intends to build and strengthen His church in all places and in all times. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd teachers, we get them all. So it's not as though Covenant Bible Church gets... Two elders, and we just got to figure it out. Good luck, guys. We would be in a heap of trouble if that's all we had. We've been given all of the apostolic witness that's recorded, all of the prophetic witness that's recorded, and again, we have been given all of the centuries of pastoral study and work that has been preserved and handed down. In other words, we don't just have what we have. There, there was one time there was this church in, in Geneva. And they had this man who was a, a pastor of that church. His name was John Calvin. We got all of his commentaries, his sermons. We benefit from that. I read a quote just a second ago. We, we, we are fed from that. Once there was a church called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And they had this pastor, Charles Spurgeon. You've probably heard of him. 
We've got his sermons. We've got his commentaries. There was a church called Westminster Chapel that a pastor named David Martin Lloyd-Jones. We benefit from his work. We, we get it. We, we receive it. Right now, there's a church called Grace Community Church in California. Their pastor is John MacArthur. We benefit from his work. We would not be as far along doctrinally and theologically without these men and countless others. It's not like we just get who God happens to place in our body. But we get all of the ages of gifted men along with the apostles and the prophets and evangelists. Christ promised He would be with His church. Christ speaks in and through His church. And He speaks in and through His church through gifted men. Now some conclusions. It is through the gifts and offices given to His church wherein the word of Christ is preached and taught that Christ Himself by and through His Holy Spirit manifests His special presence and disseminates His special revelation in the Scriptures to His churches and to His people. But we also have to remember always in the back of our mind the words of Jude, the faith once for all delivered. The canon is closed. There's no more new revelation. It's the faith. There's only one Christian faith. Paul would say in Galatians, not that there is another gospel. There's not another one. We, we only have one faith and we only have one gospel. And so, from the time of the sending of the Holy Spirit until the return of Christ at the end of the age, Christ has provided men gifted in the Word to study and examine and teach and preach and apply with relevance the singular, singular all-encompassing, inscripturated faith that's been delivered once for all. The, the picture here, if we could, we could imagine the, the, the ages from the time of the, the New Testament, and there's a Bible laying here, and every generation Christ gives these men to His church, and they step up, and they study, and they make their notes, and then they move on into history. And right behind them, there's another generation waiting to go to take that foundation and dig a little deeper, and articulate it a little more, and be a little more specific, and then they pass on, and another generation comes. Every generation using the same faith, one body of truth, and yet piling onto it and then pulling out of it using the gifts that Christ has given to the church. Therefore, and here's another statement with a lot of commas, the present day church, I could say covenant Bible church, would not, could not, will not, and cannot exist separated from distinct from, without the teaching of, or unaccompanied by the practice and example of all of those who have gone before us. We need the church of the past. We're built on their foundation, that same foundation laid by the apostles. What Christians have said in the past, in as much as it aligns with biblical truth, is absolutely vital to the church now. We must hear what they say. And as an aside, when the church of the past, as a majority, through the use of spiritually gifted men, verified by Christ's Spirit, when that church agrees on a particular doctrine or a particular interpretation or application or formulation, in all likelihood, 
it's right. Remember, it's not just men preaching. It's not just men studying the Scriptures. It's gifted men, Christ by His Spirit speaking through gifted men in His church. It's Christ speaking. Does that make sense? Christ speaks in His churches. Now I want to give you eight applications from this, eight thoughts, and, and they, they won't take that long. Since all of that is true, first, present-day Christianity is not to be practiced in a vacuum. Not a vacuum cleaner. A vacuum. A space devoid of all matter. See, there, there are many people who promote this idea or seem to just function like there, there is no other church. It's just us. Nothing came before us. Nobody's coming after us. It's just us. And that's not so. Christianity is not to be practiced in a way that promotes a mindset that we are all there is and no other church, past or present, may address us with any type of authority. Again, I would say I would go to Calvin's Geneva, that church, their pastor. If he says something to me in his words, I'm listening. Very many times I'm saying, yes, sir. That's a gift of Christ to his church. I want to hear it. So we can't practice our Christianity in a vacuum. Secondly, we are not an island unto ourselves geographically, chronologically, theologically, doctrinally, or methodologically. We are not the only church in Taylorsville, North Carolina. We're not the only church in Alexander County. We're not the only church in North Carolina. We're not the only church in America. We're not the only church in the world. We are not the supreme climax of all of church history. God didn't, Christ didn't say, I will build my church until finally Covenant Bible Church will come along and then I will return and build my kingdom. No, that's not what He said. Some of us seem to have that attitude. We don't have a corner market on sound theology. We do not have the patent on sound doctrine. We do not of ourselves and separate from all of the Christians throughout history have the right to determine what we will believe or how we operate. It's not, it's not been given to us to decide. The faith has been delivered. It's done. You've heard me use the analogy before about a basketball team, the Lakers. I don't have the right to come along and say, I play for the Lakers. Why? Because those stipulations are laid out. I don't have a contract. I don't have a jersey. I don't have the skills. I don't get to say that. The owner of the team gets to say that. The manager gets to say that. I can't say that. In the same way as a, as, as a church, we can't just come along and say, well, we don't care what anybody else has ever done. This is what we're doing. It doesn't work like that. Number three, modern Christianity should be nothing more than ancient Christianity now. Again, it's settled. What we call Christianity is done. It's, it's finished. It's, 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 if anyone wants to argue with doctrine... We don't have to say, well, well, I sort of believe it like this, or I, I see it like this. No, we can, we can go back to the subjective standard and say, here it is. This, is. this is it. Every bit of it is here. If you want to argue, argue here. Now, some things, like its expressions and appearance, may change from culture to culture. I would imagine in Hawaii, they're not dressing like us today. In, in uh, Malawi, I'm imagining they don't have a church building like we have. It's going to look different. But there's no such thing as a new, hip, relevant Christianity or church. That leads to the fifth truth, new theology 
new, new, new doctrine, new ecclesiology, fresh ideas or novel concepts within Christianity are to be defined as distinctly non-Christian. If it's new, it is non-Christian. That doesn't mean a person is non-Christian because they were, you know, they're, they're new or they were born 20 years ago. Christianity is the only one of its kind and it's old. So if anything comes along and it's new, anything original, it's not Christianity. It's not the same thing. Again, Jude. It's already been delivered. Once for all, it's done. Number six. The compendium of culturally relevant formulations and applications of truths found in Scripture may always grow but can never be diminished. Now hear what I'm saying. Culturally relevant formulations and applications. That file cabinet may get bigger and bigger and bigger as cultures change, as time progresses, but it will never get smaller. Creeds, confessions, formulation of, formulation of doctrines may always grow, but they'll never get shorter. We're never going to begin subtracting doctrines. We might add an application. An illustration would be how Romans 13 applies to the communism of China might be different in its practical outworking than how it applies in the representative republic of America. But what Romans 13 meant when Paul wrote it in Rome, it still means today. That's never changed. It's always meant exactly that. We might add a new application, but his original application always remains the same. If we don't get to that original application, we don't know what it means today. What, he, what it meant when he wrote it, it still means. What the Bible never meant, here's some good tweetable lines, what the Bible never meant, it cannot mean. And what the Bible means, it's always meant. It's always meant the same thing. It's not changed. It's not moldable. And if you need a newspaper or a globe, an up-to-date globe to understand the Bible, you've got the wrong Bible or the wrong interpretation. When John wrote the Revelation, or, or when some other prophet wrote something, if he didn't in his mind know what Russia was, he wasn't talking about Russia. Russia didn't exist. People say, well, America's not in the Bible, so you know we're not going to be here when Jesus comes back. No, America didn't exist. Does that make sense? What the Bible means now, it has always meant. It's not changing. No matter the place in history or the cultural context, variations may be added and nuances expressed in application, but none can ever be removed. I can't say, well, the way that applied back then... That, that's wrong or that's false. No, no it, it, the way that works out in a practical application is true as long as it's based on what the Bible meant when it was written. So these things may grow. And we see this over time with the, the creeds and confessions of the church. They start out small. And then they get bigger and bigger and bigger until you come to the Reformation era and a little after and you've got a 32-chapter confession. We wouldn't take any of them out and say, well, that's not true anymore. It's still true. We might add something to it. We might, we might add to our commonly held beliefs the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy because it's not in our confession. We're not going to take out what the confession says about the Scriptures, but we might add to something to it to be more specific. So it may grow, but it will never diminish. 
Number seven, I got this one from Sam Waldron, because this is just good. All Christians are obligated to study church history. All Christians are obligated to study church history. Now, how can I prove that? How many of you believe that the work that Christ is doing in His church since His ascension would be considered a work of the Lord? Anybody agree with that statement? When Christ saves somebody in His church, that's a work of the Lord. How many of you would agree that all Christians should delight in the works of the Lord? You're scared to raise your hands. Psalm 111.2 Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. If you think church history is the work of Christ throughout history and you delight in the works of the Lord, the Bible says the works of the Lord are studied by all who delight in them. Therefore, all Christians are obligated to study church history. And here's the last one. And here's the one we really need to understand to answer the question, why study a confession? Why have a confession? All Christians are obligated to receive from Christ the gifts He has deemed necessary for His church. All Christians are obligated, in as much as it is practical, to receive from Christ the gifts that He has deemed necessary for His church. This doesn't mean we have to all now go home and get on sermon audio and find every preacher and listen to every sermon every preacher has ever preached. But if Christ has placed a man into an office in His church, He thinks that man should be there and His church needs it. So He gives that gift. And again, using Waldron's phrase here, it is, quote, wicked self-sufficiency that rejects 20 centuries of Christ's special gifts for His church because you think your gift is better. I don't need that. I just all I need is me and my Bible, the Holy Spirit. Christ thinks you need more because He's been giving gifts to His church in every generation. He gives gifts. If you don't need those gifts, then why is He giving them? Again, wicked self-sufficiency. Now, moving forward, and I'll close with this. Keep all that in our brains. I'm going to ask a, a, another question with a lot of commas. At what point in present age history, that would be after Christ and the apostles, at what point have the greatest number of the most spiritually gifted men gathered for the longest using the scriptures as their guide and building on the most ancient and orthodox expressions of Christianity in order to produce the most precise, theologically accurate, and doctrinally sweeping statement of faith the world has ever known. Because if we can find that document, that's going to help us out a little bit. I would argue that the Westminster Assembly alone could fit that description. Now you say, what a second, well, we're not Presbyterians, we're Baptists. Well... Our confession is pretty much a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so when we understand that, and when we realize what happened there, and then we realize our confession was literally just a bunch of Baptists saying, no, 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 we, we, we agree, we agree, we agree, look, look, we'll just take your confession, and we'll, we'll move some stuff around, and we'll take 
a chapter from over this confession and we'll put it here and this is our confession. See, we're orthodox. That's all our confession is. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the church. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you would, in your providence and in your love and tender mercies for us, you would give us centuries of gifted men that we can run to and, and learn from and that we can sit, as we often say, we can sit at home and we can fellowship with dead saints through their writings. Not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but of great benefit to the church. I pray that as a church we would become convinced that confessionalism is biblical, that clarifying doctrine is biblical, that letting the world know what we believe is biblical, and that as we study the confession it would be more than just uh, an exercise in scholasticism, but that it would be a faithful study of the scriptures and the doctrines found therein. Do that for us, Lord, and we will... We will praise you for whatever you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.